0: You're listening to a TVO podcast.
1: The following podcast contains coarse language, descriptions of violence and sensitive themes which may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Previously on Unascertained. The real question is, were they
0: doing what they were trained to do and following the training correctly? You're hitting the ground,
1: you got a knee in your neck, I don't think it was any wound. I think he just couldn't breathe, man. I think they suffocated him.
0: I'm just thrown off by the um, leaving somebody face down and handcuffed to the rear. I mean, anybody who's ever been face down, and if you put your hands behind your back and you're trying to breathe, is difficult enough. There's no law enforcement agency that cannot be aware that that is a highly risky position to be in. But I, I will tell you that it is generally accepted in forensic pathology that restraint in the prone position is a risk factor for sudden death.
1: In 2016, a young man named Suleiman Fakiri died in a prison in Ontario. That fact is clear, but a great deal more is not. That's the subject of a brand new TVO podcast that came out last week. It's called Unascertained and is hosted by Yusuf Zin.
2: After our podcast began to release, the response was immediate. Listeners reached out. They took to social media. They wanted justice for Suleiman's family. And they wanted to know more. But for me, I thought I had gone as far as I could in telling Suleiman's story. That was until I received a mysterious message on LinkedIn one morning. Here's what it said. Hello there. My name is Steven Benko from Central East Correctional Center. I am now retired from that hellhole and would like to meet you to discuss Fakiri being murdered. Now I can speak and feel that there is info you don't have. I nearly jumped out of bed when I read this. We haven't been able to get anyone to speak to us from the Central East Correctional Center, so this was the first time I was hearing directly from someone who had worked at the jail. But I wasn't sure if this was real, so I responded and set up a phone call to hear what he had to say. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I had a
3: little trouble with the phone here, apparently. Are you hearing me okay?
2: Yeah, I can hear you fine. Can you hear me?
3: Uh, Yeah, I just thought I'd contact you and just whether or not you guys actually have all the information. I worked in that same unit for over two and a half years. I'm no longer with the ministry. I can speak to this now. Listening to this uh, podcast, I thought there's such a big piece here that everyone has missed or has decided
2: not to include. What is that, uh, what is that piece? I'm Yusuf Zin, and this is Unascertained. Okay, here's his story.
3: I'm uh, Stephen Banko, and I am a retired guard from Central East Correctional Center. I started in 1991. I was a correctional officer at Millbrook and at Peterborough Jail. And uh, prior to that, I was, uh, I was working as a psychiatric nursing assistant uh,
2: in Toronto. In 2001, Benko worked as a correctional officer at the Lindsay Jail and served there for over 20 years. His roles range from central control to general duty officer. Over the years, he's worked all over the jail, including segregation. Benko told us he had been working at the jail almost since it opened, so he admits he wasn't afraid to speak his mind. But back in 2017, Benko was arrested and faced two criminal charges. This was after a tip was made to the authorities by an inmate. The first charge was for possession of a controlled substance for the purpose of trafficking. In other words, drug smuggling. The other charge was for breach of trust. According to the Peterborough Examiner, jail security had intercepted about 200 grams of tobacco, over 300 grams of marijuana, and about 30 grams of cocaine, and investigators alleged it was Benko who was smuggling it in. He was charged and fired from the Lindsay jail. The allegation was that Benko was dropping drugs into a laundry hamper out of view of security cameras during his nightly rounds, but he denied this, saying that sometimes inmates leave shanks and razor blades hidden, and he routinely would search for that. Benko was angry and felt humiliated by what he says were false allegations. On September 25, 2020, Benko was acquitted on all charges. And according to the Peterborough Examiner, the judge said the evidence wasn't sufficient to convict him. So Benko was free to go, but he felt the damage to his reputation had already been done. I'm
3: sure once you start questioning people and mentioning my name, they're going to say, oh, yeah, Mr. Benckley is just a disgruntled guard. I'm not disgruntled at all. I'm retired. I'm happy. I'm done. When they found out that I knew what I knew, because I talked to everybody, my life changed over all this. Because I told them when I have the opportunity, I'm saying whatever I know.
2: Suleiman Fakiri died on December 15th, 2016. Stephen Benko was fired in September of 2017. And Benko says it was because he threatened to go public with what he'd heard about Sully's death. But according to him, management told Benko to stay quiet.
3: They have managed to find a way to terminate me. It's, it's the repercussions of telling them, do you think you got away with this? Just wait till I have my peace. And they said, I better shut my mouth or it won't work out well for me. And sure enough, a bogus investigation began on me in January of 2017. And by September of 2017, I was terminated. It it was a big eye-opener for me where people who I've worked with for so many years turned against me and um, basically hung me out to dry. And uh, like I said, it didn't work out too well for them in the end, but uh, because the truth came out in the trial, um, they were caught up in their own lies. And uh, I was acquitted.
2: So that's Banco's story about his criminal charges. But the reason he got in touch with me was because he wanted to share what he had heard about Sully's death. Now, Benko was not on duty when Suleiman died. He told us he arrived at the jail later that evening for his shift and learned the news from other staff members. But what he heard still disturbed him.
3: This this one was a big one. This was uh, one of the ones that even affected me. I worked in that unit for over two years. And nothing like that has ever occurred. Nothing. We've had tragedies up there. We've had problems up there. But never, ever as bungled as
2: this. Benko says he arrived at the jail on the evening of December 15th, around 6 o'clock, a few hours after Suleiman was declared dead.
3: So that's where I collected my information as to what's going on for the night. Well... There was quite a lot of information that night. It's around, it's in part three of your podcast. And it goes on to say uh, about the spithood. This, this part is very important. The spithood, the, the guards were ordered to place a spit hood on Solomon Fakiri. The person that ordered that, they are hiding. It's very specific in our policies, particularly around pepper spray, what you can and cannot do. And when you listen to the podcast, you're just shaking your head, going, what in the hell are they doing, right? It sounds like nobody knows what the hell they're doing.
2: For Benko, he felt like the one thing nobody was talking about in our podcast or news reports were the actual orders that were given by management the orders, he believed, ended up with Suleiman dead. Uh,
3: okay, so let's just, for example, say a manager comes into your unit and tells you, I want you to go into that cell and pull out an inmate. You're by yourself and you have no backup and you're ordered to go do it. A new staff will just go do it. An experienced staff member will say, go hoop your head, get me a backup. And then if the manager says, well, if you don't do that, then you just simply tell them, I will not do that. You do not ever put a spit hood on someone who's been sprayed.
2: In correctional facilities, spit hoods are only used with the permission of a manager. You can't just take one out of the storage locker. In other words, correctional officers don't have access to spit hoods Unless they get the green light from a manager, while it was one of the correctional officers who placed the spit hood on Suleiman, according to the policy, an order to authorize a spit hood could have only come from management.
3: You don't blindly just throw a spit hood on someone because they're spitting. Like you want to make sure does he have a medical condition? Does he have this? Does he have that? Like you have to check those things before you initiate that kind of action. You need permission from the manager of the unit. It has to be a manager or the deputy or someone in the mid.
2: According to the, Corps the Lakes police files, we do know that there were senior managers present at the scene of Suleiman's death. Though their role in giving orders that day is unclear.
3: It would even take a trained person to know once you spray someone, you do not hood them. Period. That's just asking for trouble. Who ordered that? I mean, you don't want to hold administration responsible, shame on you. Shame on all of you to allow this to happen.
2: In addition to the administration, Benko also took issue with the actions of the correctional officers who handled Suleiman. After the initial struggle, a code blue was called, which is an emergency call to alert all available officers in the jail to come and assist. So at a certain point, According to the police reports, there were possibly around 20 to 30 officers at the scene.
3: Well, I mean, that's just just bullshit right there. I mean, you know when somebody's been pepper sprayed. And out of 30 people, not one person said, you don't put a hood on him when he's been sprayed. Not one person. Like, come on. It's pretty obvious. It's beyond obvious. Your nose is going to be running. Your face is going to be swollen. You've got pepper spray that your body is fighting against and you need to be decontaminated. That's the first thing you have to be. You You don't put a hood hood over it. it. The The guy must have been spitting. He must have been trying to spit all that saliva and stuff running out of your nose and your body's reacting to the spray. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at someone and say, yeah, that guy's already been sprayed. You don't put a hood on him if If the person is spitting intentionally, actually, I mean that's what we're there for. I hate to say it you take that spit, and that's all there is to it. It doesn't matter if he's spitting, throwing teeth doesn't matter. you do not put that mask on
2: as a correctional officer, when you get an order from a superior from a superintendent from a manager you you have to follow it no matter what if it's illegal if it's not. The only time you don't follow
3: it is when you deem it's illegal. That's an illegal order. I'm not doing it. You cannot for me to do something that's contrary to policy. The spit hood—it becomes an illegal order because the inmate has been sprayed.
2: How easy is it to to refuse an order like that? What, what are, are there any repercussions that come from from doing that? From saying no?
3: Sure, sure. There's repercussions if you're willing to. You know, I'll deal with them. and you know, I I've, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I told my bosses no, and given them a reason why. Not just because I didn't want to do it. And there's very little, there's very few things I wouldn't do. But uh, when it comes to that line of legality and illegality, yeah, that's when you draw the line. I'm sorry. You say no. And if they want to discipline you, then in your report you'll explain your actions and why.
2: There was something else Benko felt was important for us to know. It was about ISIT. That's the Crisis Intervention Team that is specifically trained to handle tense and difficult situations. They wear all-black body armor, helmets, and face shields. A request for ISIT had been made by the correctional officers to intervene and transfer Suleiman from the showers to the cell, but only the administration can authorize the activation of ISIT. The officers' request was denied, and they were advised to try and continue to manage Suleiman by themselves. But Benko said the ICET team were actually there.
3: ICET was there within 50 feet of the incident. You had so many untrained staff dealing with a situation that was beyond their abilities, and a simple permission to initiate ICET would have quashed the entire That's really
0: disturbing.
2: Venko says he started asking questions as to why a manager wouldn't send Isit into Sully's cell when they were right there anyway. Being someone who, as he describes, knew a lot of people around the jail, he says he spoke to someone from the Isit team directly.
3: And I asked him, What the hell? Why didn't you have Isit in there? And he said they wouldn't let us. I said, that, that doesn't even sound right. What do you mean they wouldn't let you? And I said, said, we're right here. We're literally right here.
2: Benko prided himself on knowing the policies and procedures and said he would have done things much differently.
3: That, to me, should have never happened. And if it was me who was in charge, I would have said, fuck you, we're going in with ISA. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to swear, but that's how, that's how it would have gone. And then I would have taken whatever punishment the management wanted to hand down for not listening to the administration.
2: In Benko's opinion, management denying ISIT was a crucial error. One that might have cost Suleiman his life. He believes ISIT would have known not to pepper spray and hood an inmate, especially given the fact that the team wears face shields. He also believed that they would have never placed him on his stomach with hands cuffed behind the back.
3: That's what they're there for. That's exactly why we trained them. They were actually there on the floor, in segregation training. They were there. Like, it would have been a matter of 50 steps to go from point A to point B to take over the situation. And it's like, no, that's, that's, that whole thing stinks. The whole thing stinks.
2: Going back to the Cortha Lakes police files, I did find a reference to not one but two ISIT teams training that day. This is important because ISIT is not always readily in the building. When a request to activate ISIT is made, the team sometimes has to gather together, receive a brief of the situation, gear up, and travel to the facility. All this can take several hours. But yet, in this case, they were seemingly close by. In fact, A number of statements from inmates on the range found even they were questioning why ICET wasn't involved. Some even yelling to the officers, you should have waited for ICET. Were they denied because management didn't want to interrupt their training?
3: Really? Right. The emergency is still going on there, boys. Get in there and deal with the administration later because it's active, it's live, it's happening now. Why? Why in the hell didn't they just go in? It doesn't make sense. They can talk about protocol and they can talk about all kinds of stuff as to why they didn't use ICED. It would have taken a wave of a hand, a simple wave of a hand. But that's what happened. It's sickening. It's absolutely sickening.
2: Benko says he was angry when he heard management's orders potentially cost Sully his life. But what made him even more angry was the lack of accountability for those individuals.
3: They did not in fear of their jobs. I mean, how sleazy, how fucking sleazy. Somebody died. So it's not even about the person that died, it's about their precious position. They don't give a fuck. And I'm not protecting guards here, but in my view and in my opinion, and I've been doing this for almost 30 years, it was administration, period, end of
0: story.
2: We reached out to the Ministry of the Solicitor General to respond to every single allegation made by Benko, but they felt it wasn't appropriate to publicly comment. So I wasn't sure what to make of all of Benko's opinions. None of this is even addressed in all the police files I've read. Throughout this case, I'd always been focused on the frontline, lower level officers who restrained Suleiman. But what about the orders given by upper management? Was this ever looked into in either the police's or the ministry's investigations? And could it mean that management gets to escape accountability?
3: I, I truly hope we get to the bottom of all of this properly. You know, I, I think administration really has to step up here and lay their cards on the table. If you fucked up, say you fucked up, put it on the table, explain it to us. Stop hiding.
2: Benko wasn't the only one to reach out to us after hearing our podcast. Correctional officers across Ontario started emailing, calling, and messaging us, wanting to express their concerns about the way Suleiman Fakiri was treated, and many agreed... There were serious problems with our correctional system during our investigation in this podcast i learned about this idea of the code of silence an unofficial oath to not snitch on your colleagues no matter what you see or hear so the fact that correctional staff across the province were willing to break that code in order to help us understand Suleiman's case is pretty remarkable so much was happening so fast steven benko's interview the outpouring of responses to the podcast, and in May of 2021, there was even a push in the Ontario Legislature for the government to release the report on Suleiman's death. This is the report that led to four Lindsay jail staff getting fired back in 2018, and has still not been made public.
0: Will the Solicitor General do the right thing? Make this report public and take a step closer towards justice for Mr. Fakiti's
2: family? As I was trying to keep up with all of this, another development happened and this news broke just weeks after our last episode aired.
1: Earlier this year, we learned about the tragic death of a young man named Suleiman Fakiri from the TVO podcast, on our Sataint. And now, thanks in part to
0: that podcast, we have an update to the story. The family of a Muslim Canadian who died nearly five years ago in a correctional facility in Lindsay, Ontario, is hoping a review of the cause of his death will lead some answers and offer some peace.
2: On May 18th, 2021, the Fakiri family received a letter from Dr. Polanin, the Chief Forensic Pathologist of Ontario. Here's what it said. I have decided that I will review this case, based on the forthcoming factual brief, and provide an opinion on the cause of death. I believe it is important for me to review this case on the basis of my duties. I also have considerable practical experience with post-mortem examinations of cases of death during detention, both in Canada and abroad. I also have conducted research and published my observations related to death in the setting of restraint and torture.
1: You know,
3: this is a completely new pathologist who, who's, who's taking over the case and who's going to, I, I assume, write a completely uh, updated report.
2: Ted Morocco, one of the Fakiri family lawyers, has always believed the original 2017 post-mortem report was missing crucial pieces of evidence. Including John Thibault's eyewitness account of excessive use of force and testimony from the officer who said she didn't know Sully had been pepper sprayed when she ordered him handcuffed to the rear.
3: This case had to be reviewed. The fact that Dr. Palanin uh,
0: the Chief of Forensic Pathology for the province of Ontario, decided to undertake the review himself, that was a surprise.
2: Here's why this is a big deal. Sully's unascertained death status has remained the same since 2017, but for the first time in almost five years, it could now change.
0: Just because a pathologist indicates that the cause of death is unascertained by autopsy does not mean that the cause of death is unascertainable.
2: That's Dr. Michael Polanin. He and Dr. Dirk Heyer, the chief coroner of Ontario, Granted us an interview in our last episode, I was able to question them on why the death status in the postmortem report remained unascertained.
0: Well, again, you know, I'm not going to comment on on the specific case because you know th- those those elements will have to come out in you know in a fashion in evidence.
2: I had learned that the combination of pepper spray, a spit hood, and laying on your stomach with hands cuffed behind the back were all potentially fatal elements and could have very well played a role in Suleiman's death. So I wanted their response to that.
0: I, I, as I said, you know, we're getting, we're now we're now firmly into the facts of this case. Therefore, I can't sort of comment in a definitive way about those things.
2: While they wouldn't comment directly on the case, Dr. Polanin did say
0: this. There's no question that restraint in the prone position is is highly correlated with sudden death. You're absolutely correct, insofar as, you know, those are the sorts of elements that have to be considered in the case. You know, what is the role of prone position restraint? What is the role of pepper spray? What is the role of altercation and struggle?
2: Despite Dr. Polanin agreeing that I was asking the right questions, he wasn't willing to give me many answers including why the post-mortem report has been unchanged since 2017 and doesn't reflect any of this information.
0: Yeah, I think actually we have, we have exhausted that topic.
2: After our interview, I have to admit, I felt frustrated. I didn't quite get the answers I was looking for. I wanted to know their opinions on everything I had uncovered about Suleiman's death, but they just wouldn't go there. However, now, in his review, Dr. Palanin will.
0: I think there should be an ascertainable cause of death. I certainly hope that uh, Dr. Palanin finds that.
2: Do you think it's likely that unascertained could be changed or there could be now an actual cause of death?
0: I certainly hope so.
1: I was shocked. I was surprised. In my head, I was thinking, long overdue, why did it take this long, Joseph?
2: Yusuf Fakiri couldn't believe it when he received Dr. Palanin's letter, something he thought he'd never get.
1: This postmortem report, we're hoping that they can get it right. They need to get it right. But that being said, you know, you have to understand, my family, it's like a garden hope in that we've been treated so horribly by the system to begin with. The Ontario government has treated us horribly. You've had two inept and incompetent police investigations that have lacked integrity. And, you know, uh, this is the first time that we see an institution and government that are going to try to take at least a sincere and genuine look. We want justice for my brother. We want accountability for my brother, Yusuf. And this is an important start. The government needs to be held accountable for the actions of their officials, for the actions of the guards who killed my late brother. And they need to get it right. They need to get it right. They have to get it right, Yusuf.
2: After everything that has happened since our podcast aired, it's clear to me that this story lives on. The chief pathologist for the province decided to review the case after the podcast that started to air. And other people have started to pay attention. Stephen Benko and other guards broke the code of silence and reached out to me. And so many listeners have connected with Suleiman's story over social media, demanding answers. It just reminds me of the power of storytelling and how an audience has a part to play in the narrative too. So thanks for listening and caring about this story because with so much more to go, the new Postmortem Report and the upcoming Coroner's Inquest, we'll be watching closely. Unascertained is written and produced by me, Yusuf Zine, and Kevin Young. Kevin Young is also our audio engineer. Our story editor is Michelle Shepard. Our intern is Selena Gallardo. Our legal counsel is Willa Marcus. Katie O'Connor is our producer for TVO Podcasts. The executive producer of digital for TVO is Lori Few. The executive for current affairs and documentaries for TVO is John Ferry. Theme song and music by Blue Dot Sessions. Unascertained is produced by Innerspeak and TVO.